Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Method and Madness is a true crime podcast and contains descriptions of violence. This episode features themes of intimate partner violence and discussion of suicide. Listener discretion is advised. All witnesses, persons of interest, and or suspects are considered innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. There were three witnesses that day that came forward and said that he was going to choke and kill her. She had to be out by seven. This is Method and Madness, Episode 69, Misdeeds, Amanda Pierce, Part 2. I'm your host, Dawn Gandhi. Previously on Method and Madness. My name's Kimberly Mullins, and I am Amanda's oldest sister. There's four of us siblings, so she's the baby. We are from Grayson County, Texas, and it's kind of where Amanda's story takes place. She just had this fun personality. She's very just a playful, kind person. Both of my parents actually came from a very dysfunctional family, so it's kind of sort of it's into generations and I just wanted to break that around the end of 2012 and I think she'd already been kind of talking to Brian and I think he was grooming her in that time because she would kind of go by his convenience store where he worked at and he would just kind of flatter her and just and he was grooming it was classic classic grooming Kimberly Mullins is my guest in this special two-part episode. She's fighting for justice for her sister, Amanda. Amanda Pierce was a 32-year-old mother of two who was trying to escape her abusive partner, Brian Espana. On May 14, 2015, she received a threat from him. She had to be out of their home by 7 p.m., or he'd kill her. Brian left for work on the morning of Thursday, May 14th. Amanda stayed home and did not report for work that day. Instead, she spent her time making plans to leave. Without her own phone, Brian had broken hers. She relied on the kindness of strangers and neighbors to communicate with friends and family. Amanda needed to locate her friend Amber's phone number, so she busied herself that morning trying to find someone who could provide it. Amber was someone that she trusted and who had helped her out in the past when needed. So Amanda borrowed phones, called her ex, and texted her sister Kimberly, asking if anyone had Amber's number. She finally connected with Amber later that day and asked if she could be picked up that night. Amber suggested they wait until the following day, when Amanda received her paycheck from work. After 7 o'clock that evening, 
a 911 call was placed from inside Amanda's and Brian's residence. Emergency medical assistance was needed as a woman had attempted to die by hanging. Brian told police that he came home from work and went looking for Amanda in their bedroom. At first glance, he didn't see her in their room or in the closet. On a second glance, Brian said he discovered Amanda near death on the floor of the bedroom closet. She had a cord that had been cut off of an iron around her neck, the other end of the cord tied to the clothing rod. Amanda survived for six days on life support and died on May 20th, 2015. The medical examiner classified Amanda's death as suicide. But big sister Kimberly knew in her gut that something was off. She believes that based on a history of intimate partner violence, Amanda was murdered. When I began working with Kimberly this year, she told me she wasn't sure where Amanda's boyfriend, Brian Espana, was located. There wasn't much known about him at all, in fact. While Amanda was lying in a hospital bed on life support, Brian disconnected his phone and disappeared. Part of the motivation behind featuring Amanda's story on this podcast was to draw attention to how domestic violence cases are handled, how victims of intimate partner violence are treated, and how an abuser can simply fall off the radar without police showing much interest in tracking them down. Kimberly feels that law enforcement failed Amanda when they failed to find Brian Espana or seek his arrest. She thinks that Sherman police tried to make the evidence fit a suicide instead of properly investigating Amanda's death and considering that it could possibly be a homicide. Kimberly and I have talked about what justice means for Amanda. We're still figuring that out. But at the end of the day, it's important that Amanda's story be told. And that's what Kimberly would like. And it's time that domestic violence stops getting swept under the rug by those in power. Today, you'll hear more from Kimberly, the aftermath of Amanda's tragic death, and about the evidence that hints that her death was more nefarious than Grayson County officials believe. Let's dive in. We're in Sherman, Texas, located in Grayson County. While Amanda Pierce was on life support in May of 2015, doctors informed her surviving sibling, Kimberly, that the situation was grave. For the six days that Amanda was hospitalized, Kimberly went through a range of emotions, from shock and sadness that her baby sister had tried to die by suicide, to confusion, and finally, determination as she fought to get the truth. Kimberly doesn't shy away from the tough conversations about her sister, Amanda. Their family has been through a lot, from a turbulent childhood to the death of their father, the death of their brother to illness, and the murders of their mother, Rebecca, and sister, Vivian. Kimberly feels that because Amanda abused alcohol and had a history of depression, that police immediately accepted the narrative that she had attempted to die by suicide, which means they automatically believed her abuser's narrative. Amanda struggled with the loss of her family members, and she did turn to alcohol. 
but she also loved her two sons, Jordan and Kendall, dearly and wanted to get her life together to be with them as they were being cared for by family. If you pull up her name on, like, the police arresting her for something, she got picked up for harassing 911 because she had called. I took Jordan because she was drinking and there was no food in the house. So, so I took Jordan for ice cream, but I didn't bring him back. He stayed with me. So she kept calling 911 and saying, I need a ride. I've been drinking. I need somebody to take me to get my son. He's been kidnapped. And that's the only thing that's on her record. She has been hospitalized twice. That was the time that I took Jordan and I had her pick, they picked her up. So I was trying to get her a mental health evaluation because there was something going on. She was kind of manic. She was not sleeping. She was drinking. But there's no like, there's nothing that they can lay down and say, this is her history. They said, yeah, that's the thing. Your sister's got a history. So, repressed people can be murdered. Let's get into the evidence and the events. Amanda's blood alcohol level was discovered by medical staff at the hospital to be 0.382. But a statement from Brian's and Amanda's neighbor indicates that the bulk of Amanda's alcohol consumption may have occurred closer to when Brian returned home. The couple's neighbor said that when Amanda came by to use her phone, she did appear to have been drinking, but not to the point where she was stumbling or falling down. For context, let's discuss a .382 for a woman weighing 114 pounds, which according to medical records, Amanda did. Information published by the Cleveland Clinic breaks this information down based on the person's weight what their mental and physical state would be like at different alcohol levels, and how much alcohol they'd need to consume to reach that limit. A reminder, most states in the U.S. have a legal limit of .08 in order to operate a motor vehicle. At .15, a person may experience an altered mood, nausea, vomiting, and loss of balance and muscle control. Between .15 and .30, one may experience confusion, vomiting, and drowsiness. Between 0.30 and 0.40, it's likely for a person to have alcohol poisoning, a potentially life-threatening condition, and experience loss of consciousness. Over 4.0, which Amanda was close to, is a potentially fatal blood alcohol level and puts you at risk of coma and death from respiratory arrest. If Amanda's alcohol level was at 0.382 when she allegedly attempted to hang herself, it brings up the question of how was she able to have the coordination to tie a cord around a closet rod and tie the other end tightly around her throat and successfully take her life. When Kimberly arrived at the ICU to see her sister shortly after she was admitted, the nurse on staff was surprised and confused when she identified herself as Amanda's sister. Brian was already there, at Amanda's bedside, and he had told the staff that Amanda had no family. This was the first red flag that Kimberly and her husband Justin noticed. Justin was like, I want him escorted out. I want him out of her room now. Because we kind of suspected he could have done it, but not knowing or just letting the process take its 
you know, let the normal process go and rule Ron out or rule that it wasn't domestic violence, homicide. You know, we just wanted him to leave. So he was escorted out by security and I stayed at our bedside for the next seven days. But those first couple of days, I just was struggling with, I can't believe she tried to take her life and didn't call me. I can't believe she was this desperate and didn't call me. Like, just thinking that was the reason. A detective at the hospital questioned Kimberly, who said that her sister suffered from depression and alcohol abuse, and that once, she had taken a large amount of pills when she was feeling particularly low, but she had induced vomiting and called her big sister scared. Kimberly also told the detective about the history of domestic violence that Amanda had been subjected to by her partner, Brian. And the fears that Kimberly had, deep down, only got stronger when witnesses started to come forward. Kimberly spoke with Amber, the friend who was going to help Amanda out and give her a ride. Amber confirmed Amanda had been making plans to move out and that the two had spoken Thursday before Brian had gotten home from work. Amber had said, tomorrow would be better if we can get your check tomorrow while I'm in Sherman, because she lived in Oklahoma. Get your check tomorrow, then we can do it all and move you tomorrow. And she said, okay, let me talk to Brian. She was, okay, call me back and let me know. So I feel like she didn't want to inconvenience Amber if the next day would be better. And I think that's she went back and was just drinking, like just trying to pass out, thinking if I'm drunk, passed out, then he's not going to make me leave. That's what I think happened is why she was, her alcohol was so high, which how do you get a 0.38 with beer? Kimberly has considered and agonized over the events from that day. What could have happened that evening? How was Amanda sober enough at 5 o'clock p.m. to make phone calls and engage in conversation with neighbors, but two hours later had a nearly fatal level of alcohol? Kimberly thinks it's possible Amanda had drunk enough beers. She believes she was capable of drinking that much. But then the question goes back to, how, if she was that intoxicated, was she able to have the coordination to hang herself? After confirming with Amber that Amanda was in fact making plans to move out, Kimberly contacted the Sherman police twice from the hospital to express her concerns and suspicions regarding Brian. How was it that Amanda spent an entire day finding a reliable ride and an escape from an abusive relationship, only to pack a bag, leave it by the front door, and take her own life? But Kimberly didn't get very far with her concerns. She was told that a detective would reach out to her on Monday. She had to wait through the weekend. Amber provided her statement to Detective Jones, told him that Amanda had said on a voicemail message that she was in a lot of trouble and that Brian had put his hands on her neck one too many times, and that he had told her to be out of the house by 7 p.m., and that Amanda couldn't take it anymore. She needed to get out of the house. Finally, Amber detailed how many bruises she'd seen on Amanda throughout the time she was with Brian. Per the hospital's protocol for hanging, Amanda's neck brace was removed on Saturday, in Kimberly's presence. The marks on Amanda's neck triggered more concerns for Kimberly. There was one marking that encircled Amanda's neck at the base and wrapped around to the back of her neck. Additionally, 
There was significant bruising to her lower neck muscles, and on both sides of her neck were markings in downward trajectories that did not encircle her neck. Kimberly wonders if the cord was first used to strangle Amanda from behind before the cord was tied to the clothing rod, causing the downward markings. In other words, did Brian Espana strangle Amanda Pierce from behind with the cord of an iron and attempt to cover it up by staging it to look like a suicide? And we'll discuss in a bit how Brian's story changed over the next few days. Brian started out by playing the role of concerned boyfriend, calling Kimberly panicked that Amanda had tried to take her life, and then standing by her bedside. So who is the man who has allegedly gone by many aliases? In Texas, Brian Espana has been arrested six times, in September of 2009 for assault, causing bodily injury to a family member, no license and no liability insurance, and he spent three days in jail. In May of 2010, he was caught driving while intoxicated with no driver's license, and he spent one day in jail. In January of 2011, he was again caught driving intoxicated with an open container, and he escaped from police custody. In October of 2011, Brian was arrested for assault and family violence. In March of 2013, Brian was arrested for a number of traffic violations, including displaying fictitious plates. The sixth arrest involved Amanda. On the afternoon of May 25, 2014, Officer Emerson of the Sherman Police Department was patrolling the 100 block of Cleveland Avenue when he observed a man assaulting a woman. The man identified himself to the officer as Brian Espana, and the victim was his girlfriend Amanda Pierce. Brian was arrested for assault, causing bodily injury to a family member and for an outstanding Sherman warrant. What preceded the assault appeared to be a disagreement between the couple. Brian accused Amanda of hitting his car when she backed it up to give his a jump. He approached her driver's side window and began yelling at her. She denied hitting his car, and Brian began punching Amanda in the face. Amanda rolled up her window to stop the assault, and Brian's arm got trapped just as Officer Emerson arrived on the scene. Amanda then rolled the window back down and released Brian's arm. Officer Emerson observed Amanda with a swollen eye and a cut on her left eyebrow. She was unable to tell the police how many times she had been hit as she cried in pain. Amanda told Officer Emerson that she would be fine and that she didn't want Brian arrested. But a call to dispatch revealed that Brian had an outstanding warrant in Sherman for no proof of financial responsibility, and he was taken to jail for processing. Brian's version of events from that afternoon did not match up with the evidence. He said he rammed his head into Amanda's face to stop her from repeatedly hitting his car. But Officer Emerson noted that there were no dents or scratches on either vehicle and that the only damage was to a mailbox. At the time of Amanda's hospitalization, Brian had two outstanding warrants, one for the 2014 assault on Amanda and the other for failure to appear. When we come back, discrepancies in Brian's story on what happened that night in his and Amanda's bedroom. 
Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Brian told police that he found Amanda on the floor of the closet and tried to resuscitate her before he and a roommate called 911. Initially, Brian told the responding officers that he arrived at home at 6 p.m., which was corroborated by the roommate living downstairs. But Brian later changed the details and said that he got off work, stopped by a gas station, got cash from an ATM, and went home, arriving at 7 p.m. It was later discovered by Amanda's family that Brian had clocked out at his job at 5.09 and that the distance from his workplace to home was 7 to 8 miles and took anywhere from 13 to 16 minutes to drive. A reminder that 911 was called at 7.14 p.m. Another discrepancy came from the details that Brian provided about how he found Amanda. He said he went into the closet twice looking for her. Upon that second time, he saw her feet sticking out from the clothes in the back of the closet. But Kimberly finds that hard to believe. There weren't a ton of clothing items on the rod. The cord was centered in the middle of the rack. Photos taken by responding officers show that there were not many pieces of clothing to conceal the person. As Kimberly sat beside her sister in the hospital, she was doing all she could to gather as much information as possible in the event that Brian would be charged with a crime. Photos of Amanda were taken with her neck brace on and with it off and Kimberly devised a plan to capture Brian's statement. She has the text that Brian sent her Thursday evening after Amanda was taken away in an ambulance. Kimberly asked if her sister was conscious, if she was alive. Brian responded, She moves in my arms whenever I find her. I push her chest and try to make her back. The cops just left my place, and they said she may be okay. Kimberly asked if anyone was doing CPR, and Brian responded that he had attempted it, and when he did, Amanda moved her arm. He further explained that he was in shock and was unsure if he'd be able to drive. He was able to find a way to get to the hospital. As we already covered, Brian was there when Kimberly arrived. More texts followed after Brian was asked to leave the hospital by Kimberly and Justin. Kimberly was able to get Brian to come to the hospital on Saturday for the sole purpose of getting him to talk, and she recorded their conversation without his knowledge. From there, Brian continued to text Kimberly, asking for updates on Amanda's condition, and she responded 
that Amanda's condition was about the same. But then on Saturday, after she had spoken with Brian and after he'd left the hospital, Kimberly tried something different. She texted Brian that Amanda was doing better. Brian responded, Thank God and thank you for the good news. Now, if your romantic partner was hospitalized in the ICU for attempted suicide and you got word that they were getting better, what would be the first thing you'd do? Brian Espana disconnected his phone and never contacted Kimberly again. From there, he left town. But why? Why would he flee if his partner had attempted to die by suicide and he thought she was going to recover? Is it possible he feared she'd wake up and tell a different version of the events? A version that didn't line up with Brian's version? A version that Kimberly had suspected all along? The next day, a witness saw Brian carrying a small brown envelope under his arm. He then got in his car and drove away. That Sunday was the last time he was seen. When Kimberly asked detectives and the chief of police if they found that suspicious, they said they didn't, that it was typical behavior that they saw with illegal immigrants. But Brian had lived in the area for at least a decade and had a criminal history that went back to 2006. He had gone before the judge without paperwork, showing he was a citizen. He'd been pulled over without the proper documents. He'd been arrested and still had outstanding warrants. What made this event so different that Brian finally fled? Kimberly Mullins was trying to come to terms with the fact that her sister wasn't going to make it, and she wanted to be sure that all her T's were crossed and I's dotted. She wanted to make sure an autopsy was done. And after waiting throughout the weekend, she was finally able to sit down with Detective Jones. In the following clip, you'll hear Kimberly refer to a lunch bag that the detective insists indicated Amanda wasn't planning on moving out that Thursday. The bag Kimberly's referring to was a reusable tote, one you'd take to the grocery store. It held personal items, hair care products, photos of her children, and a Bible. There was also an insulated lunch bag, but photos revealed that the contents were a bottle of lotion and more personal items. So Tuesday was the first meeting I could get with him. Amanda's still on life support. Brian's already fled. He's already left everything he owned and took off. Nobody disconnected his phone by this time. So we meet with Detective Jones and Officer Smith at Sherman PD. And the first thing out of Officer Smith's mouth was, ma'am, this is not TV CSI, and families just can't accept suicide. And I'm like, she's still on life support. You, there's no investigation, but they already had that in their head, you know, four days afterwards. So that was, that was going to be the outcome. I mean, we're just like, her bags were packed in downstairs. He goes, oh, I talked to her boss. That was her lunch bag. I'm like, her overnight bag was her lunch bag. And I'm like, all of those trash bags are full of clothes. I mean, those, that was her clothes out of the closet that was empty. So I'm like, I was like, why would she take her curling iron to work? Why would she take her blow dryer and her Bible and her kids' pictures and her jewelry? She walked 10 blocks to work every day back and forth. And she didn't work that day. So why would it be by the front door? 
I asked him why he wasn't picked up on his warrants. He said, well, I didn't know he had warrants. And I'm like, how do you not know? I can pull them up online. He was like, well, my, my system doesn't cross over to the county system. And he goes, that's kind of a, just a little glitch in the system. And I'm like, I've known he's had warrants for six months. Your officer at the scene knew he had warrants. So that was kind of our meeting. It was kind of like, he goes, well, if you don't like my decision, then you can file records and then you can do something different. He goes, but we'll wait for the autopsy. And I'm like, okay, we're going to wait for the autopsy. Like, this is going to prove it. Brian had left the country, most likely. And Amanda died on Wednesday, May 20th, 2015, in Sherman, Texas. After we took her off life support and the organ harvest, she was sitting down to Dallas Medical Examiner's office. So we're just kind of waiting and waiting just for the news. Well, they called us Friday morning, said her body was already back to Sherman, and they had ruled it suicide by hanging. And I'm like, I mean, how did they distinguish it? Like, what were their, how did they know from the JP allowed us to call Dr. Urban? And, and she was like, well, I really don't know anything about domestic violence or she didn't know anything about the case except for suicide by possible suicide by hanging. And that's all she got for, with the report, the autopsy. And so she sent her back that way. I said, can I send you our pictures we took on Saturday? You know, because her injuries were healed quite a bit when she went down there. And I said, you know, she was threatened to be murdered, all this stuff. Her and Detective Jones talked again later. And that came out the ruling that she stood on the ruling of suicide by hanging without any evidence or crime scene pictures. So I kind of went back and forth Dr. Urban for a while. And it was just she would not meet with me face to face. The autopsy was conducted on May 21st, 2015 at 10 a.m., something that Kimberly was adamant about. She'd been informed by the police that no autopsy would be done since it was a suicide. The autopsy report stated that the cause of death was hanging and that the manner of death was suicide. Dr. Urban, who conducted the autopsy, explained to Kimberly that her conclusion was based on the following. There were no fingernail markings, indicating that Amanda was fighting an attacker. Her hyoid bone, the bone that is midline between the chin and the thyroid cartilage, was intact. Dr. Urban was unaware of the domestic violence history and the threats of murder made by Brian. She didn't see photos of the scene, nor did she see any of the photos taken of Amanda while she was on life support, nor did she see any police or EMS reports. So Kimberly kept fighting. She questioned the autopsy results, Brian's contradictory statements, his history of violence, witness statements that matched up with Amanda's plan to move out. And then, by 2018, a recreation of the tragic events of May 14, 2015, was conducted by the Sherman Police Department. As part of the recreation of events, Investigator Emmons was assigned to take a closer look. He spoke with the responding officers and looked at the photos taken at the scene. But Kimberly was told a non-biased party would be reviewing the case. Investigator Emmons was not a neutral party. He was one of the responding officers who was at Amanda's home on May 14th. Remember that the photos taken of Amanda while she lie in intensive care raised Kimberly's suspicions. There were ligature marks that went horizontally around her neck. Injuries that could be more consistent with someone pulling a ligature from behind 
rather than of a hanging. Emmons agreed that those markings were present in the photos. He also saw that there was a downward abrasion on Amanda's neck that didn't look like the other ligature marks. So Emmons got in touch with Dr. Urban and asked if it was possible for Brian to have strangled Amanda and then staged the scene. Dr. Urban responded that the ligature marks indicated that the wire cord was wrapped around Amanda's neck and then continued up until it was tied to the clothing rod. Emmons also contacted a neutral third party at the Collins County Medical Examiner's Office, Dr. Rohr. He asked about the ligature marks, specifically the abrasion that was downward on Amanda's neck. Dr. Rohr reviewed the photos and the autopsy and told Emmons he didn't see anything that would make him suspicious of homicide over suicide. He explained that the red abrasion could have been a shirt collar or other abrasion. On August 21st, 2018, criminalist Morgan Ard and Officer Emmons recreated the scene using a foam mannequin and weights. The mannequin was five foot seven inches, the same height as Amanda. An iron was obtained so that a cord could be cut from it and used in the recreation. It wasn't an identical iron, but the cord was cut to one quarter of an inch shorter than the one recovered at the scene. Emmons said there was no record of any measurements taken from the closet on the day in question, so they could only use photos as a reference point. After conducting the tests, the findings were as follows. The ligature marks were consistent with the ones to Amanda's neck in shape pattern. It was entirely possible for Amanda to hang herself, as described by Brian, as far as her body position. The knots stayed intact under 115 pounds of weight, and the cord was easily broken when pulled. It also was cut easily by a razor. For all of Kimberly's concerns regarding her sister's death, law enforcement had provided possible explanations. The bag that Amanda packed and left by the front door, police said was her lunch bag, even though she hadn't worked that day. Brian had no injuries, indicating Amanda had fought back. As for Brian's outstanding warrants, Kimberly was told that the Sherman police weren't aware of them because their records didn't cross counties, but one of the responding officers did know about them. Well, law enforcement is set up to breed corruption. Like, there's no incentive for them to say, hey, this isn't right. Let's, let's relook at this, because then you're going against your brother, and then your career's on the line. So you really have to go along with the narrative, or, you know, you may be out of a job, you're blackballed, but it's just set up to breed corruption, because there's no, let's bring this to the table and talk about it, and let's make it better. I can imagine as a nurse being in the medical field, covering for another nurse if she killed a patient or misgave medication. Like there has to be a peer review. There has to be some honest reporting. You know, I'll try to take this to internal affairs, I guess. You know, there's this point where who's going to hold these people accountable? The Texas Ranger got involved, but I can't find a report where he was involved. They're all friends. They all work out together. I'm like... You know, that doesn't mean anything to me. This case came to me because there were similar themes to another case that's very near and dear to my heart, the story of Katie Palmer. If you listened to my episode, Justice for Katie Palmer, 
You may remember that she was a teacher, wife, and mother of two. In April of 2020, she and her husband John were out for a walk in their neighborhood one morning. As they were walking on the side of their quiet road, a truck came up behind them, striking both Katie and John and sending them out of their shoes and into a field. They hadn't even seen the truck coming. It was driven by their neighbor, Corey Foster, who had crossed onto the wrong side of the road and had alcohol in his system. Katie did not survive her injuries, and her husband John has fought for justice for over three years. In that case, body cam footage revealed that the responding officer, Tarif Al-Khatib, knew Corey Foster personally and failed to follow protocol when he refused to administer a blood test to measure Foster's level of intoxication. This all occurred in Grayson County, just as Amanda's story does. The DA there, Brett Smith, told Katie's mother to call off her jihad. This was in response to advocates for Katie calling Brett and urging him to prosecute Corey Foster. I asked Kimberly if she had any dealings with Brett Smith. My last dealing was with Brett Smith. I Facebook messaged him and I was like, you know, can I set up a meeting with you to talk about my sister's case? And he left me a voicemail and said, you know, I'm familiar with your sister's case. At this point, there's, unless more evidence comes forward, there's nothing I can do to help you. And that was it. I'm just like, shut the book, put it away. I'm done. You know, I, I just can't do it. I didn't want to spend my energy and time taking this to him. But I've talked to John Palmer since, and he's like, you know, just put it out there. Do a meeting with him and just see what he says. You know, it may present what you have and let him make that choice. And he has he has the power right there to say, you know, I think we should move on with something or, yeah, there's nothing here. Let's put that on the table. Let's put that in record. And I'm like, okay, I think I'm going to do it. Kimberly will keep me posted on what happens after she schedules a meeting with the DA. Kimberly Mullins still wakes up every day, gets out of bed, and faces the uphill battle of getting justice for her baby sister, Amanda. I cannot grieve Amanda. It's like I'm in this holding pattern, like it's something in front of me all the time. She's on my mind when I go to bed. She's on my mind when I wake up. I'm always trying to think different angles. What did I miss? Who can I talk to? Like It's a constant, all-day battle. And I still, I mean, I just carry her ashes with me wherever I go because I'm like, I'm, I cannot put her to rest until I'm at rest. And maybe that's messed up. I don't know. I, I don't know. But I, she stays with me wherever we're at. You know, we travel a lot. But I just can't, I can't, I can't put it to rest. It's just not right. <laughs> and she's worth it. She's, people are like, just quit. Just give up. Why are, why are you still doing this? Quit dragging it out. You're making everything worse. I'm like, but she is so worth it. I would do it for you. I would do it for anybody. The following information comes directly from the blog that Kimberly manages. It's called The Pain of Injustice and offers an enlightening summary of the events leading up to and after Amanda's death. 
Domestic violence incidents, reports, and references were made over 44 times in the detective's 11-page report. Numerous people came forward with story after story of violence and abuse by Brian. Amanda lived in fear and terror, no matter if she stayed or left him. There were threats to kill her multiple times if she left him, if she didn't come back after she left him, or if she didn't leave him, which is the case on the night she suffered anoxic brain death. He had so much control over her life that she lost any sight of the person she was. Here are some examples that were reported to the detectives days after the incident concerning Brian threatening to kill Amanda. This does not include the abuse she endured, only threats of murder in the months leading up to her death. Amber said that Amanda called to tell her that if she was not out of the house by 7 o'clock, that Brian was going to kill her. Amanda told Amber that Brian put his hands around her neck one too many times. He told her to be out of the house by 7. I'm tired, and I can't take this any longer. If he chokes me again, he will probably kill me. Amber said Amanda called her at 5.15, saying she was scared for her life. She was scared to death that Brian would choke and kill her because he'd been choking her a lot lately, and if he did it again, he would not let go. Amanda's friend Miranda said about six months prior, Amanda had called her, asking her to come pick her up because Brian was abusive. She said Amanda told her that Brian was going to kill her and would not let her out of the house. When Miranda told Amanda to call the police, Amanda said she didn't want to because Brian would kill her or get someone else to. After a few weeks, Amanda begged her to take her back to Brian. Miranda said she needed to stay with her, but Amanda feared Brian would kill her if she did not come back. He had threatened that he would also kill Miranda and her family if Amanda had stayed. A co-worker had said that Amanda told her she felt trapped and could not leave Brian, and that he had told her, I'll kill you and get away with it, and I'll chop you up like your mom and sister were. Kimberly goes on to say, Again, why couldn't this death be considered as something other than suicide? That is the only question I want answered. I don't understand the detective's reasoning that, quote, there are no indications of homicide, unquote. What does it take for homicide to be a possibility, Kimberly asks. That is the question I asked the detective, a Sherman police officer, medical examiner's office, DA's office, and the assistant chief of police. Also, what was the purpose of the press conference called in May of this year concerning domestic violence and homicide by Sherman PD and the district attorney's office. Didn't it address situations such as Amanda's? Statements were made that everything would be done to deal with domestic violence. Just wondering, where's Amanda's justice? You can stay up to date on Amanda's case by joining the Facebook group, The Pain of Injustice, Amanda's Story. Check the show notes for more information. Thank you to Kimberly Mullins for your bravery. Thank you for listening to this episode of Method and Madness. If you haven't already, please leave a rating or review and don't forget to hit that subscribe button. 
To connect, I'm on Twitter at MethodPod and on Instagram at Method and Madness Pod. To chat, suggest a case, or discuss the episode, reach out to me at methodandmadnesspod at gmail.com. Method and Madness is researched, written, and hosted by me. Sound editing is by Moen Spo. That's it for this week. Until next time, take care of yourself. For crisis support, text HELLO to 741-741.